I was gone this past weekend, but the word on the street is that Brian showed up in blue jeans. And as he came up on the stage, there were whispers trickling throughout the auditorium. Is he in blue jeans? When I heard that, I thought, I'm rubbing off on him. And then I listened to the message and I realized there was a bigger point. It was a great message. We're actually going to end our second section in the book of Acts today, and then we're going to take a break for a couple weeks, and we'll pick it back up in January for the last chapters, last eight chapters, last section of Acts, where Paul is headed to Rome. It's going to be great finish to the study there. If you would, for a moment with me, just humor me for a second, and go with me to this imaginary setting, that over the past year, no one else has had a copy of the Bible except for you. Over this past year, you are the only one in the world that has had a copy of the book. All the other books are gone. All the other apps are gone. You can't find it on the website. It's only in your possession. And you've gone about your life just like this past year. You've interacted with neighbors. You've talked to people at work. You've seen people at school, your lives have crisscrossed over and over with different activities. And for some weird reason, at the end of this year, I get the opportunity to sit down with everybody that your life has continued to interact with. They don't have a clue what's in this book, but I get to ask them what they think is in here based upon what you've told them and based upon the way that you've lived your life. I wonder what they might say. We're going to dig into that a little bit this morning. Before we do, would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the way that it's alive and active. God, we pray this morning as we read it that you would use your Holy Spirit to speak to our lives. God, we want to be changed and transformed. We want this word to take root in our lives and live out through our words and actions. So we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We ask that we'd have ears to listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We're going to finish up the end of this chapter today. We'll start in verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 says this. From Miletus, he sent to the Ephesians and called to him the elders of the church. Now, before we go any farther, let me just catch you up to speed on where we're at in this chapter. As Brian talked about this last uh, week, Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get there in time for Pentecost, and the clock continues to tick. He's already missed Passover, and now as he's traveling south and arriving at Miletus, he's there at about 34 days till Pentecost happens. But he's traveled past Ephesus, this church that he loves, that is near and dear to his heart. And so before he goes on, he wants to talk with them. So he's gone about 30 miles south to the smaller city. He gets there and he asks for a messenger and he sends them up to get the elders or the church leaders from the church in Ephesus and bring them back down. It's about 30 miles north of Miletus. So a messenger would go up, probably take about a day's journey, take about a day to gather everyone, and then about a day to come back down and join Paul. As Paul's sitting there, he's thinking about what he wants to tell them. Understanding this may be the last chance that he gets to see them. So what words would he share with them? That's what will follow here. In verse 18, it says, And when they had come to him, 
He said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now, it might be interesting to note, this is the only recorded speech that we have from Paul that's directed to the church. For sure, he's given a lot of other speeches. He's given speeches to the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. He's given speeches more as an apologist to the Sanhedrin or the Jewish leaders. Later on in the book, we'll find him giving more speeches and more talks to the Jewish authorities and Roman authorities. But in the book of Acts, this is the only speech that we have directed to the church. And it's specifically directed to the church leaders, to the elders, for sure. But it's a speech that applies to each and every one of us that would call ourselves the church. Those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and are committed to following him. And so what's he do? He starts to share a personal testimony. He says, I was with you the whole time. In essence, from day one, our lives crisscross. We ate together. We saw each other. We were in each other's homes. You saw me at work. For almost three years, we've spent our lives together. You know how I live. I think if there's anybody that's going to call Paul out on what he's going to share on how he lived, it's going to be this church. We'll find out at the end of what he says how they're going to respond. If there's arguments or if people are shooting him down, he didn't actually live that way. What their response might be. Now, if I've learned anything, it's that the you, the true you, will often come out on missions trips. I've taken enough trips with people and with students over the years, and I realize it can be a hard setting to be in. You're in a different culture, in a different place. You're eating different food you're not familiar with. You're often sleeping on the floor or in a different spot like that. You don't understand the language. You're tired, and it can be a difficult place. It can be a spot where the you that you hope nobody ever saw comes out. I remember one trip, I was with a group of students and they had provided us with this foam mat to sleep on the floor with. And we were grateful for it until it rained incredibly hard and water started coming in the room. And our foam mat acted like a sponge soaking up that water. I don't know if you've ever slept on a wet sponge, but it's not the greatest to sleep on. Everybody woke up grumpy and cranky and, and the true you was coming out. Now, Paul has been traveling from place to place. He's continued going to different cultures. And yet, who he is is founded upon this word. And his life continues to reflect the things that he reads and learns and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It says that he was with them the whole time. But it also says, he starts in verse 19 by saying, he's serving the Lord with them. That's going to be an easy spot to skip over, but let's just talk for a second about what he is saying here, because this carries more oomph than what our English Bibles can translate. Serving. This isn't just that he's giving up some time. This is alluding to a greater word of servant. This word means that he served the Lord as his slave. Literally means to be owned by another. So much so, in verse 24, we're going to see how that plays out into all of his thinking. But he's serving the Lord. He's owned by the Lord. Whatever God is asking him to do, he's going to follow through. How do he serve? 
He says he served with humility and with tears and with trials. And Paul's not tooting his own horn right here saying, I was so humble. It's not like Don King that was quoted in the LA newspaper years ago that said, I never cease to amaze myself. And then he added, I say that with all humility, right? I don't think it quite works that way. The humility Paul's talking about has a deeper meaning as well. It's not just how he sees himself. It's the value that he's actually looking, looking towards. In the Greco-Roman world, in the culture that Paul's in, this word for humility could have been used as an insult. They did not see this as a value. In fact, they saw this as a weakness. You're humble. That means that you're lower. That means you're submitting your will to someone else's. And they would have used that term as an insult. And this humility does not mean that I demean myself or my value. It's not mean that I try and find value in something I can do. It means that I find value only in Jesus Christ. That's the only one. That means that anything else points to a lack of humility. If I have insecurity, if I have pride, if I have self-pity, if I have arrogance, those all start to show in my life that there's a lack of humility. Why? Because there's still me trying to gain my value in either what other people think about me or when I think about myself. But true humility, godly humility, is submitting my will to his. It's taking my eyes off myself and placing them on Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. True humility allows me to see my focus on something greater than myself. So everything I do is towards that end and not my own. Spurgeon nailed it when he said, poverty of the spirit is the bag into which God can pour the riches of his grace. Paul served with humility. Not only that, he served with tears and with, through trials. These people can be hard to love because people can be hard to love. Can I get an amen? I was in the airport this last week. I had a five-hour layover. As I was sitting there, one of the ladies in the section where we were waiting decided that it'd be a great time to do a FaceTime call with a friend. Now, I don't fault her for that. That's fine. But this call, which was approximately one hour, 12 minutes and 23 seconds, to her friend on the other line, involved a toddler. Now, we weren't blessed with a toddler screaming in our waiting area, so she decided to bless us all by not putting in headphones, but having it on the sound and turning it all the way up. And the whole time I sat there going, hmm, love like Jesus, right? Love like Jesus. Do you ever have to pray, God, help me to love people the way that you love them? Because right now I don't really like them. Maybe you have had to pray that. If you are, don't look at the person around in this room right now. Some of you are saying amen right here, right? People can be hard to love. But when we get out of the way and God starts to work through us, it changes our ability to love. For Paul, he loved this church. He served them with tears. Now, Paul doesn't seem like a guy that's going to be crying often. But they had captured his heart. And God continued to work in his life. So they were no longer a nuisance or an annoyance or the enemy. Instead, they were a chance to serve. 
They were an opportunity for him to put his needs before his own and an opportunity for him to pour out his compassion. So how did he love and how did he lead them? He goes on to verse 20 and shows that. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you love and lead them? It says that he declared or he preached. It also says that he taught them. Does that mean that Paul got up and just shared his opinions? No. We've seen all throughout this book. Paul continues to take the word of God and teach it. He shares with them. But what's so interesting is says he does not hesitate. He doesn't shrink back. What he's saying here is that he shared everything with them. When he got God's word, he didn't pick and choose the easy things they would receive. He shared all of the truth with them. Part of what it means to dare the truth, to dare to be the church at times is to share hard truths. In your life, are you sharing hard truths with others or do you shrink back? But there's another piece to this. He says that he shared with them, he declared anything that was profitable. Another way of saying this would be helpful. The way that this literally translates itself is to carry with others or continue to benefit others. So Paul shared hard truths, but he did it in a way that would benefit them, that would help them. Now this takes guts and this takes discernment, but this is part of what it means to be the church. And this is part of what it means to dare and continue to follow them, follow Jesus into the places that he calls us. Verse 21 tells us that he solemnly testified both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God. He didn't choose one message for one group that they would like to hear and choose another message for another group that they would like to hear. He didn't skew the truth. He didn't twist the truth. Paul says in these verses that he had one message. He had one gospel. He had one salvation, one way through one Jesus Christ. And he continued to share that one message with this church. Verse 22 says, Now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly to the gospel of God's, of the grace of God. Now, we continue to see this word solemnly. It's showing up three times here now. Verse 21 and verse 23 and in verse 24. There's a seriousness to this mission. Paul's not taking this lightly. His whole life is wrapped up in what God has asked him to do. And he is taking it seriously. It's also interesting to note how he speaks in 22 of his obedience. He says, bound by the Spirit or compelled by the Spirit. What's the Spirit telling him? He's prompting him that there may be hard things ahead. There may be jail. There may be imprisonment. There may be hard times coming. And if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, okay, this is a great time for a little vacation, right? Or else I'm saying, okay, God, I have served you up to this line. I think this is where I stop. But Paul doesn't do that. He continues to take those steps of obedience each time God asks, continuing to fall and daring to do the things that God is asking him to do. 
oftentimes throughout ministry, had people come up and talk to me and they've said, Josh, sometimes I just find it's hard to hear from God. And I agree, sometimes it can be hard to hear from God. But I don't think that is our greatest problem often as Christians. I think our bigger problem is often we have learned to tune God out. You ever been with a, a, a family or a parent and you've seen them talking to a young child and they're saying, okay, it's time to go and this child is playing. And you can clearly hear, I heard them say that, but the child is completely unaffected. They say, hey, I need you to get up, let's go, put your shoes on. Child does not move at all. They're going right next to them and they have to physically grab them and move them. It's almost as though the child has learned to tune mom or dad out and do their own thing. Do you and I ever do that with God? Hey God, I know you've just asked me to do this, but I'm gonna take a pass on this one. I'll wait for the next thing you asked me to do. I heard a pastor once give an illustration that I think really brings this through well. He, he said, it's like if I'm, if I'm telling my children, hey, I want you to go and clean your room. The child goes off for about a half an hour and comes back and he goes and he looks in the room and nothing has been touched. And he says, what, what's going on? They said, hey, I sat there and I, I memorized. You said, hey, I want you to go clean your room. And he says, I didn't ask you to memorize it. I asked you to do it. Would you please go clean your room? About a half hour later, comes back, looks in the room, completely not changed. Looks at the child. The child says, hey, no, you're like this. I memorized in the Greek how to say, go clean your room. He says, what I want you to do is go clean your room. About a half hour later, he goes in a little earlier to see what's happening, and there's a group of friends around his child. The room is still completely untouched. He said, what are you guys doing? They said, hey, we were having a study and talking about what it would look like to clean this room. Right? When God speaks to us, he's not just asking us to think about it, to memorize it, to meditate on it. He's asking us to act on it. Paul continues to see God's word and what he's supposed to do. He continues to hear from the Holy Spirit, and then he continues to take action on those things. I wonder if there are things over this past year that God has continued to prompt in your life that you keep putting off, you keep hesitating on, you keep thinking, oh, I'm not going to do that. That would be too hard, too difficult. And what it means to dare to be the church is to take that step. I guarantee you this. If every time you hear God's voice, you read God's word, and you know what you're supposed to do, and you take that step, it will become easier and easier and easier to hear the voice of God. He goes on in verse 24, and he says, I don't consider my life of any account dear as to myself. Another translation would say, I consider my life worth nothing to me. This is not a mental health situation for Paul. What Paul is saying here is that he has found a value in something greater than his own life. So much so that he's willing to give everything, no matter what that means, towards that end. He is willing to continue to go forward. David Livingston was a, pastor, uh, a missionary to Africa, one of the pioneering uh, missionaries, and he gave up a lot to go and spend his life ministering in that place. As he came back, he was speaking to a group of students, and David, like Paul, had found something that captivated his heart, and he wanted these students to grasp this. 
And so to his speech to them, this, these are the words that he shared. People talk of sacrifices that I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with the word in such a view and with this such a thought is emphatically no sacrifice. See, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, this may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. David had found something that takes all the comfort and convenience of this life that we have in America, and it was better. It was more satisfying. It was fuller and richer than anything he could have obtained here. David wasn't just speaking these words. He believed these words. The same is true of Paul goes on in verse 25 and he says, And now, behold, I know that all of you whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring you the whole purpose of God. Again, Paul's assuming that this may be the last time that he sees these people in this church. He's pouring out his heart to them. He's telling them, I didn't shrink back. I didn't hesitate from telling you everything I know about God, about his kingdom, about his purposes and the ways that he wants us to live. And then he moves on to a stark warning. Verse 25, 28, he says, be on guard yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that the day and night for the period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you. As we get into verse 28, we realize there's been three different Greek words that all refer to the same people. First one was found in verse 17. It was the word elder. It's the Greek word presbyteros. And then we find two more in verse 28. We find overseer, the Greek word episkopos. And we find shepherd, or the same word of pastor, poimino. These three words all carry different meanings, but they're referring to the same people. Because God has established leaders within his church to help guide forward. The first word elder is borrowed from the Jewish word in the synagogues. And it's not speaking to age and maturity. It's speaking to spiritual maturity. It's those that have studied this word and continue to grow up in this word. The things that they're reading and seeing, they're continuing to put into practice and live out in their life. They're growing more mature in Christ. The other word overseer is really interested. It's used in scripture three different ways. It can be used for an army captain, for a construction worker. It can be used for a city administrator. Just think of what each of those roles would carry. Each one is someone who safeguards something and sees that it's done correctly. So in the leadership, God is asking some to step up and safeguard the truth of the gospel, the doctrine. 
and see that the church continues to function on mission for God. The last one that he uses is shepherd or pastor. This is pretty obvious. A shepherd would be somebody that directs the flock. Sheep are not good animals to allow to direct themselves. They care for the flock. They tend to the flock. They look out for them. So what Paul's doing here is he's showing a leadership structure that God has established for his church. But this leadership takes the role of leader in the world and flips it on its head. Because this is not a position of status to be achieved. This is not a ladder to climb. What God is asking for and what Paul is demonstrating is the greatest leaders in a church should be the greatest servants. Paul is taking a cue from Philippians chapter 2. And Jesus' example of how to serve and love the church. It's not an achievement. Notice in verse 28, it shares that the Holy Spirit directs and places elders in this place. And they're there to serve. It's not a vocation either. Often in our church uh, culture in America, we think this is a paid thing. You get paid to do this. But throughout scripture, God makes no distinction between those that may be blessed by the church to do this as a full-time occupation and those that serve while also doing another occupation. But it is a high challenge and a high calling. And as we go through scripture, we find in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the attributes that would qualify someone to serve in this way. And it's a solemn list. It's a reminder that God's church is of incredible value because we have to understand whose church it is. In verse 28, it says, to shepherd the church of God. It's not a pastor's church. It's not an elder's church. It's not any one person's church. It's God's church. Someone once said that our, it's not that our church has a mission, but that God's mission has a church. And this church is near and dear to God. Why? It says he purchased it with his own blood. This church is so valuable that he's given his own life for this church. So he's a high calling for those that are going to lead and going to shepherd and going to care for this church. He continues that same thought even in Ephesians 5 as he sets up a structure and how to care for and lead and love the family. He challenges husbands to love as Christ loved. What's that mean? That he gave his life for his bride. So as we look at this, we start to understand there's a value in this. And also notice there's an interesting imagery within this. It's talking about flocks and it's talking about shepherds. And he's continued to refer to us as a church as his sheep. Are you like me that every once in a while you just wish that God would have maybe chose a different animal knowing sheep? Couldn't he have said like, you church are my lions, right? And then he would say, lion keepers direct the lions. Or maybe you church are my silverback gorillas. I need the zookeepers to take care of the gorillas. Or even gazelle. I mean, those are graceful. You church are my gazelles. But he doesn't. He says sheep. Spend one minute on the internet looking up sheep and see what he's talking about. In fact, I'll show you a video. This is one of my favorite videos from the last year of a sheep that happens to find itself in a hole. Now, this guy seems like he's acting as a kind shepherd to help the sheep out. It's free. It's going. It's joyful. And it's back in the hole. 
maybe sheep actually is a really good metaphor for us. <laughs> if you think of it, we have one leader, our great shepherd. He is the one that leads our church. He has established under shepherds to help follow his lead and care. And it's a reminder to us that we are people that are completely dependent upon our great shepherd. We are so vulnerable. And we, like uh, sheep, have an incredible need. And he says this to set them up for a warning that's coming. He says to be on guard. He challenges the leaders first, watch yourselves, guard yourselves, and then the flock as well. Because leaders, if you're not guarding yourself, if you're not watching yourself, where you lead the church will be devastating. So he goes on in verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come along among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise up speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after them. There's an article of a scientist that wrote about 34 caribou calves that had been completely slaughtered, killed in a 24-hour period. As they went and studied, they realized it seemed like minute after minute, a pack of wolves had come in and just savagely killed these caribou. 17 of them, they'd eaten just a little bit. 17 of them, they had not touched at all. It's a term that scientists like to call, um, what do they like to call it? Surplus killing. It's the idea that an animal will come in and it will just kill for the sport of killing. Wolves could come in and savage. This is the picture that Paul's giving to the church of those who will come in and how will they do this damage and this, this harm. It says in verse 30, speaking perverse things. Or another way we could say it is twisted things. Or the NIV says distorting the truth. Someone that will rise up and they will speak things other than what we find in the word of God. We find this all over today, don't we? We find it online, we find it in books, we find it from speakers, we can find this everywhere. In fact, it's taking a lot of ground right now in a word called deconstructing your faith. It's the idea that I'm going to systematically continue to deconstruct the beliefs that I've had down to nothing. And then many people will stay there, or some will start to rebuild them based on how they feel. And it's an incredible uh, dangerous thing. You can watch your YouTube videos to start to construct your faith. You can start to read books to construct your faith. You can start to read posts to construct your faith. But there is only one thing that he's telling us that we should use to construct our faith, and that is God's word. He's telling them to be alert, to be aware. What's interesting is I read stories of these people that are deconstructing their faith. There are common themes that constantly run through their stories. Here's what they are. If you listen enough, you'll hear them. They've, they've uh, at some point in their life, they've been hurt, either by their family or by the church. Or at some point in their life, they have had poor teaching poured into their life. At some point in their life, they've had a lack of biblical community. They've gotten outside that and went rogue on their own. Or at some point in their life, they've been a part of being hurt by a Christian pastor or celebrity that's had failure. All of these remind us how valuable and how important it is, not only that we speak the words from this book, but that we live them out. It's also just become a popular thing in our culture. Try and deconstruct, try and find your own truth. And he's telling them, be alert, be on guard. And then verse 32 goes on to say, and now I commend you to God 
to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourself know these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul is not concerned about the church's survival because the church's survival is not dependent on him. As he leaves, he tells them, your survival is dependent on Jesus Christ, on holding to his word and listening to his spirit, on continuing to live out those things that you've learned because he has learned himself, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And then he continues on to tell them, telling them uh, as he ends, uh, we see the reaction. Verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. They began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the words which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. We get to the end after he shared his message, and we get to the response. And they're in tears because of the life this man has poured out for them and helping lead them to what it means to follow Jesus. I wonder in our lives, as we leave, how many people would be so cut to the heart because we're gone, because of the impact that Jesus had in our life that is poured out into their life. Paul is not following a list of rules. He's not just requiring some kind of attendance to church. He's not saying casually get up and turn on the TV and watch the service. He's saying, what I've found is worth giving my life to. And I believe it with every fiber of my being so much that I'm living it out. Test me. Tell me if I'm wrong on this. We find that Paul lived his life in a way that what he said lined up with what he did. And what he did lined up with the word of God. You want to see impact. You want to see incredible change in people's life. This statement will ring true there. The authenticity of their life gives credibility to the message from their lips. You want to have incredible impact this year in other people's life? Then let the authenticity of your life give credibility to the message from your lips. Over the last year, we've been continuing to challenge each one of us to dare to be the church. We've continued to say this when we get to January, it'll be a year now. And daring is kind of fun sometimes. I remember growing up, my brother and I went out with some friends to this theme park, the roller coasters. The weather was kind of bad that day, so it was raining, they're on and off, and the crowds kind of split off. So for the whole morning, we got almost all the rides to ourselves, and so much so that we'd get on a roller coaster, we'd ride it around, we'd get back to the spot, we'd be the only ones on the roller coaster. We'd look at the person that was running it. He'd look at us. We'd just do this, and he'd send us back through. Incredible time. We ate corn dogs. We ate cotton candy. We ate uh, soda. We ate every great delicious thing in the park. We're getting to the end of the day. Crowds are starting to come back in, and we dare each other to go on one more ride. Because dares are kind of fun, right? And it's the pirate ship. Anybody ever been on the pirate ship? So we get on, my buddy's sitting there, we're sitting there, and it starts to move. And on the first little slant, 
his face just goes. Now, if you haven't been on this ride, half of the ride is set up facing the other half of the ship, and the other half is set up facing the other half of the ship. So as you tilt up, you're looking at the people down below you, and as you tilt back, you're looking at the people above you. Now, the person sitting directly across the boat from my friend instantly also noticed his face, and his face almost mirrored it too. Oh, no. And the more the ride would go up, the more scared this man would get. And the more the ride would increase, the more green my friend would get. I've never heard a more encouraging person than I did on the other side of that boat that day. Come on, buddy, hold it in. You can do it. He would continue to encourage him, and the more the boat would get up, the more the encouragement would come. We get to the end of the ride, and that man was the first guy off the boat, not my friend. My friend made it to the boat, and we thought it was a good dare. Or he made it to the bushes. That's as far as he made it. Dares can be fun. But what we're asking you to do is not just for fun. When we continue to say dare to be the church, we're asking for something that is the ultimate value that we can find our lives in. To continue to take steps in obedience to the things that God is asking us to do as a church. Not putting it off. Not selecting, this is what I want to do, this is what I don't. Not telling the Spirit, hey, that's a little bit too much to ask of me, but stepping into it. Because every time each and one of us do that, God's kingdom will continue to do incredible things. Amongst our ordinary, average, everyday lives, the church will continue to move forward. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that it guides us. Thank you that you have a plan far bigger than our own. Thank you that your truth does not change. Thank you for the invitation to join our lives with you, to align with what you're asking us to do. God, we want to do hard things. We need your Spirit's power to do it. We want to listen to your voice. God, we need community around us to continue to encourage us. God, we want the truth of this book to be reflected in our lives so that others know you and they know that you are the real deal. So would you help us and would you guide us? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.